scripture this morning is from uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 6. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Fred. I'm part of the team here at Christ City. And uh, to echo what Micah said, if you're a visitor, welcome. Um, just to help you get oriented, we, this is the fifth week in uh, a series that we're doing in Matthew 5 through 7, which is uh, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. Uh, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're working slowly through these opening statements that Jesus makes. Uh, called the Beatitudes, and uh, we are excited that we're going to unpack this whole sermon over about 32 weeks, so we'll have a little break for Advent coming up there in uh, December, and then we'll be jumping back in in the new year, and that'll take us all the way through the the spring up to the summer. Um, Before we jump in and look at the text that was just read for us, can I please invite you to lean in with me and pray? Father in heaven, um, you want all of us, for we were made to know you and love you, and as Augustine said, our hearts are so restless until they find their rest in you. You are our rest. You are our joy. Only you can satisfy our restless hearts. So, Father, help us to tune in this morning to what Jesus is teaching us. And not not just to receive it as information, but to receive it as what it is. uh, The very word of God, which is able to transform us in some way that we can hardly begin to understand. Lord, would you move upon us this morning by your spirit? And bring your word to bear upon our lives and, and give us grace to, to repent where we need to repent and to believe um, and to embrace what Jesus is inviting us into here this morning. And I pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I think, I think it's fair to say that we, we all recognize the fact that there is something wrong uh, with the world. Nothing is the way it's supposed to be. I hope we can all recognize that. In fact, I think that anyone who looks around and considers what they see, um, they ought to agree with that. I don't think that's a controversial statement at all. Whether we look and see the problems uh, with the environment or we consider the conflicts among various nations or we recognize the problem of discrimination between the different races or perhaps we're we're bumping into in our lives, we're bumping into problems and, and uh, 
tensions in our personal relationships. Or or maybe we're just aware of uh, the fact that there are disorders within, within the human psyche, perhaps even within ourselves. Everything just seems out of whack. Everything seems disordered. I don't think that's a controversial statement. It should be obvious. But, But what is much less obvious, I think, is what should be done about all those problems that I just listed? Or what can be done about all those problems? Or perhaps most important, and, and, and I want to show you how this is related, but I think the most important thing is um, what would an ideal world really look like? If all those problems were, were out of the way, if they were all solved, what would that world, that ideal world, really look like? Now, make no mistake here. Um, Whenever someone proposes a solution to a big problem, they are working with a concept of an ideal world somehow. They're working with, they have an idea of of what a world would look like where the problem that they're proposing a solution for, where it's going to arrive if that problem is solved completely. They have a vision of an ideal world. Now, this all might sound to you a little bit abstract and philosophical this morning. Um, it isn't. Just this past week, my, my daughter came home. She's been assigned um, a, an assignment from her grade 9 social studies teacher. And she has to write two pages on uh, answering the question. Here it is. Is Canada better today than it was in the 19th century as it relates to uh, the rights of immigrants, the rights of Aboriginal people, and the rights of women. And my daughter told me about this assignment. She showed me the question, and I looked at it and said, better? Better in relation to what? In other words, what is the ideal version of Canada that is assumed in the question? You see, unless we have an ideal or a perfect standard of some kind, we really can't speak about whether things are getting better or getting worse. Here's the thing we need to know. Every value judgment that people make assumes some sort of ultimate standard. And my question is, what's the standard? What's the standard? Where does that standard come from? And how can we possibly know it? See, the inability that we have as human beings to to definitively answer those kinds of questions, our inability to answer those questions is, I would argue, a a major factor in why there's so much confusion and conflict in the world. Now, for the citizens of 
God's kingdom, the standard by which we measure better or worse, is revealed to us in the word of God. That's the standard. And I would suggest to you that we, we can't really know an absolute standard that we can all agree on, on our own. It can't be done. God has to reveal it to us. We're not capable on our own of figuring out the answer to what I think is perhaps one of the most important questions we can consider. So with, with that in mind, that God has revealed to us this standard in his word, I want to look this morning with you in the scriptures at Matthew 5, verse 6. Stephen just read it for us, but I'll reread it. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, here, Jesus is talking about the deep, deep longing that every citizen of God's kingdom has for seeing all things brought into proper relationship with God. That's the standard. Everything, we ought to be burdened to see everything, ourselves included, everything brought into a a, a harmonious and a proper relationship with God. This is the standard. Sinclair Ferguson explains, righteousness is the situation in which Things are what they ought to be. That's what we ought to desire. We want to see things be what they ought to be. We all recognize there's a problem. But what's the solution? What are we aiming at? How will we know when we've arrived? How do we know if things are getting better or things are getting worse? Righteousness is the situation in which things are what they ought to be. This is the better world, the new world, if you like, that Christ's kingdom is bringing and will, at the end of the age, bring in its fullness. And Jesus says that this is what every Christian ought to desire more than anything. Now, I understand lots of non-Christians have strong desires to see a better world brought about. The problem is, as Mark Sayers points out, he's a pastor in Australia, Mark Sayers points out that they're yearning for the kingdom, if you like, but they want it without the king. Think about that. That's... That really summarizes most of the uh, aspirations of, of making a better world that we hear on the news all the time. That, that people desire the benefits of the kingdom, but they don't want to submit to the king. Problem is, apart from Christ, the human longing for universal justice or righteousness, the word is the same in Greek, 
The longing for universal justice or righteousness is an unobtainable goal apart from Jesus Christ. It's a utopian dream that will never be realized. I realize that politicians love to promise these things. And I hope I'm not setting up anyone for a big disappointment here. But they will never deliver on those promises. Have you noticed a trend? They promise the world. They promise a better world. They promise a perfect world of some kind. If only we could enact this policy. If only I win. I will solve all of your problems. It's a claim that no politician and no policy can ever deliver on. Because only Jesus can deliver the kingdom blessings. Only Jesus can make everything the way it ought to be. So what is this righteousness that Jesus wants us to long for? I have three points. Righteousness explained, righteousness desired, and righteousness obtained. Let's start by explaining righteousness. Jesus introduces this word here in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verse 6. And this is a major, major theme in the whole sermon. So we need to understand it. We need to dig down into it a little bit if we're going to understand uh, the whole message of the Sermon on the Mount. Righteousness is a big theme. Now, I imagined myself, before I was a Christian, sitting where you are, listening to what I'm saying, and I don't know, the, the word righteousness is just such a churchy word, right? And I, if I heard that word, and I knew nothing about the Bible, I, I didn't know the Bible had two testaments, I'd never read it. And if I heard the word righteousness, here's what I would think. I would think of a bunch of um, stuffy, uh, uptight, judgmental, religious folks who... who, who kind of act all holier than thou. Now, that's what we call self-righteousness. And just to clarify, that is not what Jesus is introducing to us here in Matthew 5, verse 6. What, what Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount is an entirely new way of living in the world. Specifically, Jesus wants us to to long for a way of living that is, as I said a moment ago, in complete Harmony with God's nature, will, and kingdom. Write that down. That's what righteousness is all about. Living in harmony, in complete accord with God's nature, God's will, and God's kingdom. Only when that comes about will everything be as it ought to be. Now, we need to drill down on this a little bit more because, again, trying to imagine sitting where you are this morning, I would immediately start to give myself a list of things that I have to do. I have to change this. I have to improve that. Um, well, that's, that's been a little bit loose lately. I, I need to tighten that up. So let me clarify. Um, righteousness is not about 
simply obeying a list of biblical rules. That's not what it's about. And Jesus makes this point in Matthew 5, verse 20. He says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. I mean, anyone listening to Jesus say those words would have been shocked, or as the English say, gobsmacked. Unless our righteousness exceeds, exceeds, is so much greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It would have been shocking to hear that. Because if anyone in that day seemed able to enter the kingdom of heaven, it was the religious professionals, the scribes and the Pharisees. These guys had degrees in righteousness. They were meticulous in their righteousness. Contrary to that popular idea at the time, Jesus teaches that our external righteousness or our outward obedience is not enough. We have to exceed that. Outward obedience is not enough. True righteousness, the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, true righteousness is obedience that comes from the heart. We might say it's obedience that flows out of love. That, that kind of obedience, that kind of righteousness is what we should hunger and thirst for. Now, Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, gives us a number of examples. He really unpacks this suitcase for us. And we're we're going to look at the examples that Jesus gives us of this greater righteousness, if you will. Um, but we won't get there until January. So what I want to do is just draw your attention to one example that Jesus gives in Matthew five twenty-seven to 28. Here's what he says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus isn't adding anything to the original commandment against adultery. But what he's doing is he's emphasizing its its full force, its full scope. See, far from forbidding some outward act of immorality, Jesus is saying that real righteousness requires purity of heart. It requires integrity. It requires obedience from our innermost being. See, merely avoiding the act of adultery may satisfy your spouse, but it won't satisfy God. Why? Because he doesn't look 
at the outward behavior. He looks at the heart. He sees the very thoughts and intentions and desires and the attitudes of our hearts. That's where obedience has to come from. That's where, that's the righteousness that we ought to be longing for. Because probably we recognize that we're not in sync with that righteousness. We, we need to long for it. We need to hunger for it. We need to thirst for it. Because we recognize, if you're anything like me, there's a disconnect. There's a gap. It's, it's, it's not happening. We need to be obedient from the heart. Fully conformed to God's will. Children are a great example of this. Children taught me more about about the Lord than I think anything, aside from the Word, of course. But, you know, you see a a child, maybe a five-year-old child, maybe a six-year-old child that's not in the room right now. And um, I'm much bigger than my six-year-old. And there are consequences Uh, for disobeying, and there are sometimes consequences for obeying. You know, there's the old carrot and stick approach. You know what I'm talking about, parents? And so, employing the carrot and stick approach, it's amazing how how a parent can can, um, engineer the obedience of their child, right? And that's great when they're six, or seven, or eight. But when they get as big as some of my kids, you know, Nathaniel's 6'3 now, he towers over me. Somehow the old carrot and stick approach just doesn't doesn't cut it. And that's where really love is most important. See, if, if as parents, we win the trust of our child's heart, if they know we love them, and if we demonstrate to to them over and over and over again that we love them even when we disagree with them, even when we ask them to do something that is contrary to their desires, they will reorient their lives. They will reorder their behavior because of their love for us. That's righteousness. That's true obedience. It's obedience that comes out of a love for God, out of a love for our Father in heaven. It's not external. It's it's deeply internal. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, just to underline and highlight this point even more, Jesus says in John 5:48, lest we have, you know, if we haven't got the point here yet, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now the word here that is translated as perfect does not mean you must be morally perfect and sinless. Just like God. Jesus knows we're not. He makes that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. And the rest of the New Testament makes that abundantly clear. The passage that 
um, we read this morning from 1 John made that clear. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. So Jesus does not mean by saying that we need to be perfect as our heavenly father and perfect, that we need to be sinless. So if that's not what he's saying, what is he saying, Fred? Well, the Greek word translated here, and I, I almost never do this, but it's, it's a great word. It's teleos. And it, it's, a, it's an important word. It can be translated as perfect, but it can also be translated as whole, complete, mature, or consistent. One person I read got a little bit creative and suggested using the word beautiful. I like that. We must be beautiful. We must be whole. We must be complete, consistent, without hypocrisy, the way God is. That's what Jesus is driving at here in Matthew 48, uh, 548. So if we follow, as I've tried to do very quickly, if we follow Jesus' argument and we put these texts together, we could say something like this. The righteousness that Jesus is describing here is wholehearted, single-minded devotion to living in harmony with God's nature, will, and kingdom. That's the righteousness. We should be a people who desire this, who long for it, who do everything, who, who press into this reality with, with all of our strength to make it more and more and more true of us. Now, does that describe us? Are we the kind of people who are wholehearted and single-minded in our devotion to living in harmony with God's nature, will, and kingdom? It's very convicting, is it not? <laughs> I mean, it's a terrible thing when you have to study the Bible and then preach these things and, and allow the Word of God to shine its light on your own heart. It's very, very convicting been some repenting on my part this week. Are we a people who are longing for a deeper, fuller, richer, more sincere obedience to God in our church and in our city and in our world? Do we long for Christ's kingdom righteousness to, to grab a hold of us and then move out of us toward our families, toward our friends, toward our neighbors. Now, I think when we seriously consider what Jesus is talking about here, um, it's easy to understand why some people freak out. It's, it's easy to understand why some people just kind of step back and say, whoa, you know, that's, that's, that's a pretty heavy commitment. And I think when we get freaked out and overwhelmed by the kinds of claims that the Bible, especially Jesus, makes upon our lives, I think we make a big mistake. What we try to do, and, and, and friends, 
we all try to do this to some degree. And I, we all try to kind of domesticate the claims of Jesus, don't we? We try to downgrade the Christian life so that it's little more than saying our prayers, going to church, and being nice to other people. But I think you agree with me. If we're taking Jesus' word seriously, that's not going to cut it. That's not a righteousness that is going to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Besides, who'd really want to live that way? I mean, that's just blah. That's boring. That's not the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is calling us, Christ City, Jesus is calling us to be all in. To take all of our chips and put them on the table. Jesus is calling us to be totally devoted and sold out to seeking and doing the will of God. That brings me to my second point. Righteousness desired. Look at Matthew 5, 6 again for a moment. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who think about righteousness and are able to explain it to others. So it's very convicting. <laughs> we can't stand up here and preach about righteousness and then not seek it. Not try to, to, to press into it, not desire it. See, righteousness is not an abstract concept. I'll say it again. Righteousness is, is living and desiring to live in harmony, in complete harmony from deep within us, in harmony to God's nature, God's will, and God's kingdom. In short, what Jesus is describing is no ordinary kind of life. He is describing a life that is being transformed by the grace of God. He is describing a life that, that, that the Spirit of God is working in us as we trust Him, as we look to Him, as we put all of our hope in Him. This is the work that Christ begins to do in us by His Spirit. Jesus says the blessed people, the flourishing people, are those who are gripped at the core of their being with a voracious appetite for righteousness. I love what Dale Bruner says. He paraphrases verse 6 by saying, Blessed is the person who longs for righteousness as though his or her life depended on it. Do we long for it this way? Are, are, we, are we desperate? For this righteousness. This, this point here that Jesus is making here in verse 6. It really helps us connect to what he has said previously uh, in the Beatitudes. In verses 3 to 5 he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. These three statements or these Beatitudes um, we could understand them as descriptions, if you will, descriptions of emptiness. 
And now here in verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness because they will be satisfied. See, we ruin our appetites, don't we? You know, if, if I don't know if Matt's here. Matt, uh, maybe I shouldn't spill this. Matt Duncan is an amazing cook. And if Matt is cooking, and, and Marlene and I are going to go over to Matt's place, don't eat anything that day. Okay? You know, what would it, what would it be, you know, say I showed up at, at Matt and Kat's place, and I said, ah, oh, wow, I, I just had two Big Macs and a large fries on the way over. You know, it might, it might ruin my appetite for this great meal that Matt has just laid out for us. Um, how often do we do that? And I think that, that we don't have this, this longing, this desire, this hunger and thirst for, for the righteousness that Jesus is talking about, quite frankly, because we're feeding our souls on all sorts of things that don't satisfy, right? Here's the logic of, of these Beatitudes. Only when we've come to the end of ourselves, only when we fully recognized and realized our poverty of spirit, only when we have mourned over our sins, only when we have embraced true meekness, only then are we gripped with this deep desire for God's nature and God's will and God's, cov- and God's kingdom to completely reorder our lives. There's a great example of this, I think, in in Luke 7. We can't go into detail, but it says, Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. Think of this as like an illustration or example of what I'm talking about. It says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, code, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, very expensive, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, a lot of money, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. 
But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, this woman who everybody knew was a sinner, a a prostitute, she didn't try and hide who she was. She didn't put on a mask and pretend to be somebody else. She walked into the middle of that banquet. And there were important people who were shocked by that. But she didn't care. She walked into the middle of that dinner party. And she wept at the feet of Jesus. She honored him in the most lavish way that she possibly ever could. And I would suggest to you that this woman's approach to Jesus is a great example of what it means to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. See, she, she wanted forgiveness and Jesus gave her forgiveness. But what she really wants, what she really wanted was to be transformed. She wanted to be free to live for what is true and good and beautiful. Jesus says everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. She wanted to be free from her slavery to sin. What did Jesus do? He, He saved her. He set her free. He sent her away in peace. What he was doing is showing her what the kingdom of God is really like. I'm so thankful for narratives like this. Because Jesus... In all of our ugliness, and all of our sin, Jesus does not turn us away. He welcomes us. When we come to Him, recognizing our poverty of spirit, when we come to hear Him mourning over our sin, he, he doesn't turn us away. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't berate us. He does to us what he did to this woman. He forgives us. He saves us. He gives us his peace. It's a beautiful picture. Matthew 5, 6 is inviting us this morning to be like this woman. To come into the presence of Jesus, who is the only righteous one who has ever lived, doing all the will of God from his heart completely. We're invited to come to him and submit to his good and gracious and forgiving and transforming reign in our lives. So let me ask you. If somebody, maybe tomorrow at work, if somebody comes and says, what is it that you desire most in life? What's your answer? Fill in the blank right now in your mind. What is it that you are desiring most in your life? Is it righteousness? Is it to see God's will done completely in your life and in your family and in the lives of your friends and in your neighborhood and in your world? Or is it a better house, better job, Children, a spouse, popularity, happiness, 
I mean, look at all the things we set our hearts on that we hunger and thirst for. None of them are going to satisfy us. And when we aim at those things, I think it's an indication that our hearts are out of sync with the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the things that he knows we need will be added to us. The Lord looks after his people. Maybe not the way that we might have imagined. As I demonstrated last week through my illustration. If you didn't hear the message, go to it. But the Lord knows he's much wiser than we are. He takes care of us. The problem is, Christ said, that our desires are out of whack. Our desires are disordered. They're misdirected. And instead of seeking to be satisfied in God and to do his will, we seek it in the things that he has made, don't we? There's a beautiful, rather vivid uh, image of this, a diagnosis of this in Jeremiah 2. This is a striking passage. In Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13, it says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. What are they? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In the, in the ancient Middle East, you'd have to dig a big cistern and you'd coat it in clay and that cistern would catch all the water because they didn't have taps and plumbing, obviously. And the Lord here in Jeremiah 2 says that we've turned our backs on the fountain, the, the never-ending fountain of living water, who is the Lord himself. We've turned our backs, we've dug out cisterns, but they're broken, they don't hold water. And so imagine you've got your face in the bottom of the cistern, you're trying to get water, and you're sucking up the mud. The water is all drained out, and all that's left is this muddy residue. That's the picture. Jesus came into this world to wipe that mud off our faces. He came into this world to rescue us from our disordered desires. See, he lived out perfect righteousness before God. He did the will of God in thought and word and deed from his heart. Why? Because we've all failed to live that way. He knows it. You know it. Let's just be honest about it. And so he's come into the world to, to live that life for us and then to pay the penalty of failing to live that life. Jesus Christ was crucified for our unrighteousness. For our failure to obey God. And and then he rose from the dead and he gave us his spirit that we might begin to hunger and thirst and long for a completely new way of living. An eternal life way of living. That's what he puts into us by his spirit. That's what he begins to work into us so that we desire what we never could have imagined desiring before. Every Christian is a miracle of God's grace. Well, I'm running out of time. Never said that before. Let's 
look at righteousness obtained. Jesus says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. Only Christ, only Christ can satisfy. Only Christ has the power and the authority to bring all things into harmony with God's nature, will, and kingdom. We cannot have the kingdom without the king. It's a futile dream that can never be realized. In John 7.37, Jesus, uh, we read, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Christ City, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn us. He came in the world to satisfy us. All of us. You're made in the image of God. That longing, that desperate longing that all of us have when we stop distracting ourselves long enough to know it, notice it. That desperate longing that we have is only satisfied in being reconciled to God and knowing His love wash over your life and transform your heart. That's what Jesus is calling us to. So are we cultivating a hunger and a thirst for doing the will of God? I love what C.S. Lewis says in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward that are promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy, infinite satisfaction is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seaside. We are far too easily pleased. Christ City, my appeal to you this morning is don't be too easily pleased. Lift your sights a lot higher than they are. Begin to pray and seek and ask and knock that God would awaken in our hearts a passion, a a desire, a longing for. As if our life depends on it, because it does. A longing for His righteousness and His kingdom and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're to, to long for. Imagine if the Lord were to move on our hearts and begin to put this deep desire in us, what that would look like in our city over 10 and 20 and 30 years of faithfulness. Don't think in terms of days or weeks or months. Think in terms of years and decades. The effects of that, I don't think we can begin to calculate. That is why we exist. We're not here to say our prayers, go to church, and be nice to people. We're here to be transformed by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, as we look to the Son of God, who died and rose again to make this life in us possible. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you please, I pray, awaken in our hearts a deep, deep longing 
for your will to be done on earth with us as it is in heaven. Lord, we need your your grace for this. We need a work of your spirit in our hearts for this to happen. And so we're pleading with you, Lord, have mercy. Make us the kind of people that live for you and for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.